Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn to uh, Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians chapter number 3 tonight is uh, going to be um, the third and the final message in a uh, series throughout the um, chapter of Colossians chapter 3 that I've been preaching um, um, over the last uh, couple of times that I've had the opportunity to preach on Wednesday night. And uh, the theme has been entitled, The Preeminence of Christ in Our Lives. Uh, Paul kind of laid the groundwork for that topic in um, Colossians chapters uh, 1 and 2, and that Christ was the preeminent one, um, and that through him was creation and the church and salvation. Um, without Christ, none of those things would, um, would be in place. And in, in chapter 1 and verse 18, um, it says that in all things he, speaking of Jesus Christ, might have the preeminence. That in everything, um, he ought to be the center, he ought to be the focus, he ought to be the driving force of our lives because of the role that he's um, played in, in each of those things. And Colossians um, 3 and verse 11 says, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, and so we kind of started at the beginning of uh, chapter number 3. The first part deals with our personal lives and how that Christ ought to be the, the preeminent, ought to be the focus um, of our lives personally and how we conduct ourselves personally. And we talked about um, putting on the new man and putting off the old man um, and how that um, we ought to become more like Christ through sanctification. The second part of chapter 3 talked about Christ, the preeminence of Christ in our church life and how that through every aspect of our church life, from the time we come in, everything we do the, through the preaching and through the singing, and through the interaction with other believers, ought to be focused, ought to be driven by Christ, with Him in mind, and, and with honoring Him first and foremost in those areas. And then in, in this last part of chapter number 3 that we're going to deal with tonight, Paul um, talks about living um, our social lives, about, him being the pre, about Christ being the preeminent one in our social lives. And he gives us three relationships to consider. Um, during this, he gives us the relationship of the marriage between the husband and the wife. Talks about the parental relationship between parents and children. Um, and then he gives us the work relationship between employees and employers um, that we're going to deal with tonight. One thing I, I want you to consider as we go through these is that all three of these relationships are very complex. Um, they're very unique. They have their own intricacies um, their own details that are different for every single situation. Uh, but Paul gives us some, uh, some basic, some general instruction on how to handle each of these relationships. Again, keeping Christ at the forefront. Also, you'll see as we go through, each of these relationships are reciprocal, which means they work hand in hand. Um, um, each party in these relationships has a responsibility and as each party fulfills that responsibility and fulfills what God has called us to do in that relationship, it makes it easier for the other party to do their job. And they work together to build a stronger um, relationship um, with Christ as the focus. And I hope to make that clear in each of the relationship as we go along. In all honesty, all three of these relationships that, that Paul is dealing with was written in the context of the home. Um, I believe that... that 
um, Paul's goal in writing this is to build stronger, godly homes for the church. For obvious reasons, when we get there, um, the last point we'll deal with outside of the home. Um, but I believe this, that's the main thrust tonight, is, is to make Christ the preeminent one in our home, in our social lives. The Chinese philosopher Confucius said about 2,500 years ago, the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. And I believe that, I, I wholeheartedly believe that to be the case. The integrity of, of the home, as the integrity of the home has deteriorated over time, so has the strength, so has the integrity um, of our nation as well. Um, as, as, as our churches has also declined as the t- deterioration of the home has declined. Fellowship Baptist Church will only be as strong as the homes that comprise Fellowship Baptist Church. I believe that. Warren Wiersbe wrote, one of the greatest things that we can do as individuals is to help build godly Christian homes. And it's a responsibility of every single one of us to build a godly Christian home in the home in which we live. And and, and if you're not, um, and and you can help um, those that surround you in in, in your grandkids' homes and in your um, aunts and uncles' homes and in all these other areas, we can help to build um, godly Christian homes. And that's our goal for, for us tonight. The first relationship that Paul touches on is the marriage relationship. Look at verse number 18 and 19 of, of Colossians chapter 3. It says, Wives, submit to your own, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as is, is as fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. He tells us first, wives, submit. You know, in this empowerment culture of our day, um, submit uh, would probably be more well off as a four-letter word, to be honest. Uh, You know, the culture does not like us to hear the word submit or submission, especially in the context of the home. But let's do a a little word study on submit or submission so we can get a better understanding of what Paul is is calling um, the wives of our homes to do. Um, One of the definitions of submit on dictionary.com is to subject to is to subject some t- kind of treatment or influence, and isn't that the idea of submission today? That's the idea of this culture to subject somebody underneath a some kind of treatment or influence. But but that's not the context in which Paul is writing this. That that term of submit is more like a wrestler putting his opponent into a submission hold, and 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 putting him subject to some kind of treatment. But the word that Paul uses for submit here is hupatasso. And and it means to arrange under, not by compulsion, but willingly. It means to willingly arrange oneself under the authority of another. Not because they're compelled to do so, not by force, but I'm going to say that many, many times tonight, willingly arrange yourself under, um, under somebody else, under the authority of there. The term hupatasso is used 40 times in Scripture, but only six of those times is it used in, uh, in uh, referring to wives submitting to their husbands. 
So it's used many other times. I want to, uh, most often it's used in reference to creation, being subject to the creator. But here are some other times in terms um, in, in scripture that the word submission or subjection is used. So it's going to be up there on the screen. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. James 4.7 Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. 1 Peter 5.5 Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Luke chapter 2 and verse 51. And he, speaking of Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, and his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. As you can see here, the act of submission... It's not just something that God has called wives to do and to their husbands, but it's something that God has called every single one of us as Christians to do in our own individual lives. He's called all of us to be subject to somebody, submit to something, submit, submit to some authority figure in our life, whether that be in the church or whether that be to one another or whether that be to um, um, government authorities or, or um, law enforcement authorities. The act of submission is something that we've all been called to do, and it's something that Christ modeled. The, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, it says right there that he subjected himself. He willingly uh, placed himself under the authority of his parents as a child because that's the authority structure that God um, structured in the home. For the parents to be of the authority of the child. And so um, Christ subjected himself. He submitted himself under the authority that, that God had called him to. And in the same way, God has called wives to willingly arrange themselves under the authority of the head of the household and their husbands. I came across this article um, by the Christian author John Piper on the topic of submission. Um, in the home. And I wanted to share a few points from that article um, with you. In the article, he gives several things that submission is not. He wrote this primarily from the text of, of 1 Peter chapter number 3, um, but it will help us to understand what it means um, to submit and what it does not mean to submit. And husbands, this, um, these things are just as, more for you, just as much for us as it is for our wives so that we can better understand our wife's role in the marriage. The first thing that submission is not, it is not agreeing on everything. In the marriage relationships, wives should have the ability and the freedom to respectively disagree and to voice their opinion in a respective manner. Guys, submission does not mean that your wife has to blindly agree with you on every matter. God created every single one of us individually, um, with our own opinions and, and with our own feelings, and those don't go away on the day that we say, I do. And the wives should have the ability, should have the freedom to voice opinions and voice disagreement in a respectful manner to their husbands. Submission does not mean you do not try to influence your husband. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying tonight. If your husband is not fulfilling his role 
as a godly husband, as a godly father, as a Christian. Submission does not mean that you sit idly by and watch him lead your family into sin. You can help your husband develop leadership skills, develop godliness while also being a submissive wife. And guys, if your wife is trying to help you, that doesn't necessarily mean, constitute a lack, of, a lack of submission in that instance. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Verse 18 says, um, there in our text, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. If submission to your husband means a sin against God, then that's not fit in the Lord. Submission does not mean living or acting in fear. Submission is, is, is free and it's given willingly. Man, if your wife obeys out of fear, that's not submission. At least that's not submission how God intended it to be. That's submission in, that's submission in the context of a wrestler. Putting his opponent into a submission hold so that he gives up, so that he submits. That's not submission in the context of, a, of the marriage relationship that God had, that God instituted. That's a perversion of the godly institute of marriage. So what does, what, what does submission look like then? I love this definition from John Piper um, on, the, on what submission is. He says, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the wife's calling in marriage to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry that out. Understand there's room in there in the affirmation to help strengthen and improve those leadership decisions. And then helping your husband lead through the gifts that God has given you. That's what submission is all about. Is honoring him, is is supporting him, by helping him as he leads the family, and then helping him carry out those decisions in the family through the gifts that God has given to, unto you. So God told the wife to submit. He told the husbands to love. Says, and the husbands are probably thinking right about now, we got off easy tonight. I tell my wife I love her all the time. Just the other day, I, I even told her I love her with a heart eyes emoji. I got this on lockdown. You may have heard the old joke, the elder couple, um, the, the wife um, asked the husband, why don't you tell me you love me anymore? And the old grumpy guy said, I told you I loved you on our wedding day, and if that ever changed, I'd let you know. <laughs> That's not the type of love that Paul is calling husbands to love their wives with in this context. It's not a lovey-dovey love. It's not even a, not even a sexual type of love. It's the agape love. It's self-sacrificing Love. Flip over in your Bible a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter number 5. I want to show you um, how Paul um, said husbands should love their wives um, in, in this passage of Ephesians chapter number 5. Verse number 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Paul said we're love our lives, our wives, the same way that Christ loved the church. And how did Christ show his love for the church? He gave his life for it. Christ wanted, Christ wanted what was best for us. He wanted what was best for his people. He wanted what was best for his church. So what did he do? He, 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 he did what had to be done. He gave his life. He sacrificed for his church, for what he loved. And then you ought to want what's best for your wife and do what is necessary to have a sacrificial love to make that happen. We ought to be willing to sacrifice what we want in an attempt to show that sacrificial love to our wives the same way that Christ did through the church. Verse number 28, he said we are, uh, in verse number 28, he said we're, we're given another example of how we're to love our wives. As much as we love ourselves. A big problem in today's marriages and in today's homes is that husbands love themselves more than they love their wives. So they nourish their bodies, they cherish their bodies, they take care of themselves, and they do what they want to do, they do what pleases them without any consideration for how their wife feels. Man, we, need, we, we buy whatever we want because it's going to bring us happiness. Without a, without a thought of whether it's beneficial to our home, beneficial to our marriage, beneficial to our family. Seek to love your wife as much as you love yourself. Sacrifice your joy for hers. Love your wife with a sacrificial love. If you want a more detailed look on, on, how, on the love that you should have for your wife, then go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13 tonight when you get home. And read 1 Corinthians 13 and ask yourself, do I have this type of love? Don't ask yourself, actually, do I have this type of love for my wife? Ask yourself, do I show this type of love to my wife? Because agape love is not an emotion, it's an action. It's a self-sacrificing action that, that, that does things for others. That puts her first. That shows her that we love her more than we love ourselves. So Paul said, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now husbands, we need to be careful not to harbor any ill will toward our wives. For anything that they did, for anything that they did not do. Hebrews 12, 15 says, any root of bitterness can spring up and trouble you. And in the marriage relationship, just a small root of bitterness can spring up and can, can poison the home can allow Satan to have a foothold in your, in your marriage and in your home. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Men, men protect your homes by not allowing bitterness to spring up, by allowing bitterness to fester in your home towards your wife, towards your family. These two actions, submit and love, Work hand in hand to, pr to provide for a strong, healthy marriage. The more that a husband loves his wife, the easier it is for her to submit to him. The more that the wife submits to the husband, he'll love her more and more. 
and, and, and it's reciprocal. These things work together to build a healthy marriage. Husbands, if, you're, if your wife is non-submissive, love her like Christ loved the church. Love her more than you love yourself. Sacrifice some things for your wife. Sacrifice your joy for her joy. And see if that doesn't help. Wives, if, if your husband um, doesn't love you that way, submit yourself unto him. Willingly arrange yourself underneath his authority. And see if that won't motivate him to, to, to show you in more tangible ways the love that he has for you. The more that we fulfill our role in a marriage relationship, the more willing our spouse is going to be fulfilling their role in the marriage relationship. So Paul addresses the, the marriage relationship here. Then he addresses the parental relationship in the home. Verse number 20 and 21, back in Colossians 3, says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. He says there, the first um, group of people he addresses there is the children. Obey. You know, it's tough to get any simpler than that. Children, obey your parents in all things. But, but as I, I, I thought about that, I, I thought of a way that I, we can give a, um, some different um, points of application. And do so, I'm going to emphasize a different word um, in that verse um, several different times. I believe Pastor's done this with Psalm 23, verse 1. And I'm going to do this tonight. So obey your parents in all things. God gave you your parents. Kids, teenagers, he gave you, uh, he gave you your parents and you ought to follow the rules that they have established inside and outside of the home. You should obey for a number of reasons, but, but, but one of the most basic ones is that it builds character. As you, obey, as you learn to obey your parents now, then obedience to authorities in the future is just going to come um, as, as um, second nature. As you learn to obey your parents now, as you move out of the home and as you um, 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 get other authority figures in your life, it's just going to be easier to listen to them. As you obey your parents now, it's going to be easier to obey um, school authorities. It's going to be easier to obey um, coaching authorities and work authorities and, and, and police authorities and government authorities and spiritual authorities. Build that habit of obedience doesn't rob you of any individuality that you can have, but it helps you learn to conduct yourself within the boundaries of the life that, that, that you will be put upon throughout your entire life. You don't just leave the home and all of a sudden authority is gone and you don't have to obey anybody any longer. When you leave the home, then the authority figure simply transfers. It transfers to a work authority. It transfers to a landlord authority. It transfers to um, a government authority or, or, or a spiritual authority, any number of things. So obey your parents. Obey your parents. Hey, God gave you your parents. They're yours. So obey the rules that they have put into place. God didn't give you somebody else's parents. Whether your parents are better or worse than somebody else's, the family that God has placed you into is your family, and God is expecting you to obey your parents and their rules. 
Rebelling against your parents is simply rebelling against the authority that God has put you into. It's simply rebelling against God. It doesn't matter that because they're, the type of, they're not the type of parents that you wanted, or, um, or they're not as cool or as nice or, or as strict as, as another set of parents. God has placed you into that family, and they're your parents, and you ought to obey them because that's what God has put you to be. Obey your parents in all things. Obey your parents. They're your parents. They're God's appointed authority structure in the home and in your life. Understand this, young people. Your parents, it is their responsibility to make sure that you're cared for, make sure you're protected physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's a, that's a responsibility that God has placed upon your parents. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 4, we'll look at it here in a minute, He has called them to raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nurture means to teach. The word admonition deals with correction. And, 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 and God has given the parents in the home the responsibility, the authority to teach and to correct teach you how to obey, and to correct you when you do not obey. And, you, and, and you'll never understand, you'll never understand the pressure that is on your parents to fulfill that responsibility until you are in their position with children of your own. They're trying to guide you to make the best, wisest choices for your future with their understanding, with their life experience, with what they're taught in Scripture, they're your parents. They're, what, they're the, the authority structure that God has placed in your life right now. Obey your parents. Obey your parents in all things. In all things. Whatever the situation might be, children, teenagers, obey your parents. I want to be, I want to be clear tonight. The context of this passage is in that of a Christian home. Unfortunately, through in our fallen and broken world, occasionally non-Christian parents have compelled their children to do things that are illegal or that put them um, in, in, um, in danger. Those situations need to be handled um, in a different manner. If you're in that situation, I encourage you to reach out for help. But to my knowledge, the, the teenagers, the kids in this, in this building tonight um, come from good homes, come from parents who want what's best for their children. And God has called you to obey your parents in all things. Uh, whether you like it or not. Whether you want to do it or not. Whether you think you can or not. You know, my, my kids seem to think they can't, they can't ever do what we tell them to do. Say, clean your room. I can't. Eat your food. I can't. Be nice. I can't. It, you know, um, you can and you should because it's well-pleasing to God, it says. It says it's well-pleasing to God. It doesn't say obey in all things because you'll be happy. It doesn't say obey in all things because your parents are going to be happy. It says obey in all things because it will please God and God will be happy and joyous in your life when you obey your parents in all things. Children, you have the responsibility in the home to obey your parents. But parents, we have the responsibility in the home to provoke not. It says, fathers, provoke not. Children have a role to play in the home, as do the parents. 
uh, the children's role is to obey the parents. The parents' role is to help their children obey. The word for fathers in verse number 21 can be translated as parents. It is in, in elsewhere in Scripture. So we're going to um, uh, um, you know, kind of adopt that tonight, that parents provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. We as parents are responsible. Like I said a minute ago, we're responsible to provide an atmosphere in the home that fosters obedience. The children are responsible for obeying, but, it is, but it's not our job to make it difficult for them to obey. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yeah, I said a second ago, nurture and admonition means two things. It means to teach, is what nurture means, and admonition um, means to call attention to something. Call attention when they have um, not followed that teaching. And therefore, correction in times when it is appropriate. Um, so parents, it is, our role in the, it is our role in the children's obedience to teach them to obey and to admonish them or to call attention when they have not obeyed. If our teaching and correction results in an attitude of anger or wrath, like it says, uh, then there's a chance that we have approached it in a wrong way. Not to say that they won't ever get upset. Uh, with discipline. I don't expect my kids to be happy after they get a whooping. I anticipate they'll be upset. I hope that they'll be more upset at themselves for disobeying. That's not always the case. But parents, if, if you sense a growing resentment in your home, a growing anger, resentment in your children, then perhaps you should reconsider the ways in which you've carried out that discipline. Because, because Paul warns us at the end of verse number 21, lest they be discouraged. Discouraged children are fair prey for Satan in the world. When your child, young or old, does not feel encouraged, does not feel the strength from home, then they are going to seek it somewhere else. And so it's our responsibility as parents to foster an environment, to foster an atmosphere of loving obedience. Let me give you a couple practical ways to foster a spirit of obedience in the home. First thing we can do is model obedience by showing, not telling. We can model obedience. Show them how to pick up, to, how to pick up after themselves by picking up after yourself. Show them how to do the chores. Show them how to fold the laundry, how to take out the trash. Show them how to be kind one to another. Show them, this is one, show them how to listen by listening to them when they speak. How often have we as parents told our kids, hey, listen, listen to me, look at me while I'm talking to you, but yet when they want to talk, we can't take our eyes off the TV or off the phone or, or off whatever it is we're doing. Show them. Don't teach or don't, don't tell but model obedience by showing them how to do what we want them to do. How can we expect our children to be obedient when we don't model obedience? So model obedience by showing, not telling. Encourage obedience and good behavior. Encourage it in your home. Encourage it in the family. Tell your children regularly that they did a good job. 
Tell them regularly that you're proud of them. Compliment them when they've, when they've done what, what they are told. Perhaps reward them when they've done what they're told. I'm not saying to give them allowance because of their obedience, um, but for younger children, you can use a merit system, use a sticker chart or a star chart, and when they obey and when they do what they're told, they get a sticker and they fill that sticker chart up. They get a, they get a go have a family ice cream night or go out with mom or dad by themselves as a reward for their good behavior. Um, um, you know, have a movie night where the kids get to choose the movie and parents have to watch no matter if you've seen the movie a million times or not. Hey, that's a good way to teach your kids and to show them and to motivate them to do what's right and to get them excited about obedience and about doing, and about doing what they're told. For older kids, I don't know if a movie night would, would motivate you a whole lot. Parents, reward them with, with perhaps more freedom as they earn it. Being clear that, that they can lose that freedom just as easily. But, but, but reward them with more freedom or with more perks or, or whatever it is that, um, that, that might motivate your children. Um, um, encourage, build a, an environment of obedience in your home. Parents, we're responsible for laying the groundwork of obedience in the home. And as we do, as we lay that groundwork and as we foster that obedience by not provoking our children to wrath, then it's going to encourage obedience in our children, and that relationship will be healthier, will be stronger, will be, um, will be God-honoring at that time. The last relationship that Paul draws our attention to is the work relationship between employees and employers. Look at verse number 22. It says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Paul addresses servants and masters in the text here. Obviously, we don't deal with slavery today. When Paul wrote this, he was um, speaking um, primarily in the context of the home of servants and masters. Um, slavery is obviously not part of our um, culture today, but we can take what Paul said concerning servants and masters and apply it into our work life as employees and employers. Let's look what Paul had to say about servants. He teaches that employees ought to be good, obedient workers. When at the workplace, obey. Do what you're told. Be there when you're supposed to be there. Dress how you're supposed to dress. Act how you're supposed to act. Talk like you're supposed to talk. Be a good, hard worker in the workplace. Not, not, not just so that the boss is impressed. Like it says, not as not with eye service as men pleasers, not so that the boss will be impressed and you might get a raise, but because that's what God has called you to do. God has called you to be, to be a good worker. So be a good worker. If you're on salary and, and, and you don't have to clock in, still be there on time and still stay till the end of the day. 
Um, if, if you get paid, no matter how much you accomplish or how well you accomplish your task, accomplish it to the best of your ability. He said there, do it, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Doesn't matter what your job description might be. Do it with all of your heart. Do it with all of your, um, do it with all of your uh, might. Give it proper effort for God. Because He gave you that job. He gave it to you. He gave you that opportunity. So work hard for Him. If you slack off, it says there, don't be surprised when you're punished. Don't be surprised if you lose your job because you're late. Don't be surprised if... If, if, if you're punished, you lose your job or, or you're docked in hours because you're sloppy in appearance or slothful in your habits. Paul said, do what's right and God will reward you. Do wrong and you'll receive the wrong for which you have done. I've um, told this story, I know I've told it in my, in my Bible study class at times when, when we're talking about work. I may have even um, given this illustration or this story in, in, in church. I'm going to give it to you tonight. Um, because I'll never forget it and, it, and it applies so well in this context, I believe. When I was in college, I worked at, at Cracker Barrel. Note that that's not politically correct right now, but I worked at a restaurant called Cracker Barrel. And, uh, and I was a grill cook. And, and, and uh, when I went and got that job, um, I left liberal, and minimum wage, I think, was like five twenty-five an hour. And that's, I probably made that or slightly more than that here. Um, and so I went to Oklahoma City and applied for this job, and, and on the application said previous workplace and previous wage. So foolishly, I didn't put, you know, $20 an hour. Um, I, put, I put what I was making. And then when I got hired, the manager looked at that, and he offered me $8 an hour. And I was like, cha-ching, what a, what a raise. Little did I know at the time that was not supposed to be the starting rate for the position in which I was being hired for. I didn't know that for, um, at the time. I was excited I got a job and excited I, got, I was getting paid uh, uh, big bucks. And, uh, and so I worked there for, um, it had been about a year, a year and a half, and I um, had, uh, at, at my intervals of, of um, evaluation, um, I passed my evaluations and I got raises. And, um, and so by that time, I was making a little bit more than that. Um, but a, a friend of mine from the college got a job doing the same thing I did without any experience ever in the restaurant business, and he told me what he was making. And it made me angry because he was making more than me or just below what I was making. A different manager was, um, uh, did the hiring at that point, and he got hired where he was supposed to at the pay, and I got upset. And I called my dad. I don't know if dad even remembers this. I called dad. I was ticked off. I said, I'm quitting. I'm going to go find another job, or I'm going to go talk to him. And, and I don't know the exact advice my dad gave me, but he called me down, and, and I prayed about it, and I sought God, and I thought about it for a while. I said, you know what? I'm doing just fine. I'm paying my bills. I'm okay. I'm getting good hours. You know, let God take care. I prayed, and I, and I told God I was going to let him take care of me. So sometime later, I don't know how long it, how long it went by, Sometime later, I'm just working, kind of doing my thing, and a, and a manager comes by and stands next to me. He says, hey, Sid, said, I talked to Brent, the district manager. He said, we're going to get your pay up where it's supposed to be. He said, nobody else went to bat for you. I went to bat for you. And your next paycheck, it's going to be up. It wasn't time for a raise. I was months away from when I was supposed to do my evaluation, when I was supposed to do my raise. But listen, I worked hard. I did what I was supposed to do. And, and God rewarded 
good work. The Bible says God will reward good work. And just do your job and just do what you're told and just serve God in your work and he'll reward you. But don't get upset and don't get all fired up when you come through those doors and you're all upset because, because you lost hours. Because you saw a decrease in hours because you were slothful or because you were late or because you were sloppy or because or you were poor in your, in your work effort. So he gives a, a, an admonition to the employees, but then Paul speaks to the employers. Just as marriage and the parental relationships have mutual responsibilities to help each other fulfill their role in their relationships, employers and employees both have their role in the work relationship. Those that are employers or supervisors or in places of leadership tonight in the workplace, I want to encourage you tonight, treat those under you justly and fairly. As you conduct yourself in the proper way, those under you will be more willing to work harder and do more because of the example that you set. I don't think I ever had an issue with that manager. With, uh, the manager's name was Winnie. I don't think I ever had an issue with Winnie. But I'll tell you this. The day, the next, the day after she came and told me, hey, I went to bat for you, nobody ever said a bad word about Winnie around me because I worked hard for her. She had my back. I had her back. And if you as employers, as supervisors, as bosses, if, if, if you go to bat and you work hard and, and you do what's right for your employees, your employees are going to work hard and do what's right for you. We have a, you have a mutual responsibility to help each other in the work relationship. As we review a very practical passage in Scripture about the duties of our home, through the marriage relationship, through the parental relationship, our duties in, in, in our work relationships, as we deal with other people in our social lives. We see the, the, the place of preeminence that Christ should have in each one of these relationships. It is by his power, it is by his authority that we can fulfill our roles in these relationships. And if he is the preeminent one in our lives, he is the focus, he's the driving force of, our, of how we conduct ourselves in our marriage and how we conduct ourselves in our parental um, um, relationship and how we conduct ourselves in the, in the work relationship. And we lead the way that God wants us to and we submit and we, and we um, love and we obey and we parent the way that God wants us to. If he's the center of our lives, then it's going to build strong relationships for everyone involved. But understand this, church, understand this tonight, church. If, if Christ is not the center of those relationships, the people that know us best are going to realize that. They're going to see that. And it's going to, and, and our relationships are going to suffer because of it. If we choose to go into a marriage relationship without the thought of, of honoring God first, by loving our wives the way that we love ourselves, and submitting um, why submitting you to your husbands the way that, that, that Christ submitted to his family and how um, God has called us to submit. If we don't do that with the, with the thought of, of doing that for the honor and glory of God, then our marriage is going to suffer. If we go into the parental relationship just doing something because our parents want us to do it or, 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 or ruling our, our home with an iron fist because we want to be honored and because we want to be obeyed, Without, the, without the, the thought of what God wants for our lives, then our, our, our parent-child relationships are going to suffer. 
And if in your work life you, 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 you don't take your Christianity in your work life and work hard because that's what God wants you to do, your work life is going to suffer. Encourage you to live your life with, with Christ as the preeminent one. 